to become a major social justice mobilizer. He held no political position, no special title in Congress or government, was not appointed to anything anywhere, was not financially wealthy or privileged, but yet, 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 he brought pressure to bear to help bring about federal voting rights, civil and housing rights in a dangerous climate of violence. So we ask all of you to challenge your representatives to challenge the White House and say we cannot continue to support the Israeli government and its apartheid policies. We are here to declare that just as persons have traveled from all over the country, we're going back, but we're going back empowered, and we're going back informed, and we're going back to be agents of transformation in this country. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Evarum, and I am so grateful to be able to bring you this show on this momentous week marking the 50th anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. At a time when, I have to admit, it is very disheartening to see so much injustice in this country and around the world. I know I received a real lift from seeing so much passion for justice this week. One of the most moving expressions was by the author and activist Makani Temba, who wrote on social media that after King's murder, quote, it's hard to describe how the world literally transformed in our hearts and before our eyes, end quote. Later in the show, I'll be speaking with Sean Blackman, an organizer in the Movement for Black Lives here in D.C., We also have voices from the rally to end racism and from a rally to condemn the massacre of unarmed Palestinian protesters by Israel Defense Forces. As always, we have a jam-packed show starting with our headlines. The rally to end racism held on the National Mall by a broad coalition of faith leaders was the highlight of a series of actions and events held on April 4th in D.C. to mark the 50th anniversary of the assassination of the human rights activist, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Actor and activist Danny Glover was one of dozens of speakers. At around 6 p.m. on Thursday, August 4th, 1968, the United States lost the captain of its moral destiny, the one most uniquely suited to help it master its moral faith. While racism was the context for its activism, Dr. King saw and made us see the ways in which racism intersect with other issues, namely poverty and militarism. Other events in D.C. on April 4th included a march from Howard University to U Street in Northwest D.C. and also another rally in Southeast D.C. More from the rally to end racism later in the show. There has been a surge in student activism in D.C. during the past year. 
Howard University students are in the second week of protests over misappropriation of financial aid funds and other grievances. And this week, Chantel James filed this report on students carrying on in the tradition of King's work for labor rights. A diverse group of protesters processed down Georgia Avenue on Thursday after meeting at the Georgia Avenue Metro. They marched to the Wendy's on Georgia Avenue, where they held a rally to decry the fast food franchise for sexual violence in their supply chain and to call for a boycott. Sarah gave us the background on the issues at stake and explained the organizers' call to action. So we're standing in solidarity with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Um, Currently, they have a campaign against Wendy's, um, who is perpetuating sexual violence in their fields. Many farm workers in agricultural industries today, including women, experience an 80% rate of sexual violence in the field, as well as labor exploitation and the threat of ICE deportations. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers has pioneered the revolutionary fair food program to stop these abuses in the fields, Um, and it's been proven to work. 14 corporations have signed on. Unfortunately, Wendy's is the last one um, that's kind of holding back um, and not eliminating that violence in their supply chain. Is this part of some kind of a larger action or is it just a one-day Yeah, so DC Fair Food is the organization that locally organizes in solidarity with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. There are 24 other cities that have national actions going on today in solidarity with the coalition. And that is primarily in response to Wendy's PR executive, Heidi, recently said that the women who are a part of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, they're exploiting the momentum of the Me Too and Time's Up movements, which is just an outrageous thing to say for a group of women of color who for decades have been pioneering this work um, and really have been at the forefront of ending the abuses in the fields that have paved the way in the agriculture industry and in other industries, like recently the milk industry and the dairy industry as well, to to end abuses, labor abuses that affected the men and women who are creating the food that gets put on our table. So where can people go to find out more information about what you all are doing and maybe to join your efforts? Yeah, so DC Fair Food is the local group that I would definitely encourage folks to reach out to. Um, And if if you're not located in DC or you're interested in getting involved on a national scale, you can reach out directly to the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. um, And they're down in Florida, they'll reply to you. We have a network across the nation, so no matter where you are, you can get involved. There's something you can do. And not just look up information, but for the time being, they've launched a national boycott of Wendy's, asking people to stop giving their consumer dollars to Wendy's until they sign on to the Fair Food Program and protect our workers. Great. Thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, of course. Thank you. This is Chantal James for On the Ground, signing off. Thank you, Chantel. In environmental news, activists continue to call for the resignation of Scott Pruitt, head of the Environmental Protection Agency, as he is embroiled in a series of scandals, including those involving lax or non-existent enforcement of protection standards. And this week, there was a glimpse inside some inner workings at the Pentagon. 3,000 Google employees signed a letter demanding that their employer end involvement in a Pentagon contract to analyze imagery that could potentially improve the precision of drone strikes. Google employees said in the letter that the collaboration runs counter to the company's stated mission and model to do no evil. Quote, we believe that Google should not be in the business of war. Building this technology to assist the U.S. government in military surveillance and potentially lethal outcomes is not acceptable, end quote, the letter said. 
Google officials have stated that the technology it's developing is non-offensive, but Google employees are rejecting that claim. In culture and media, on Friday, April 6th, from 7 to 10 p.m., the National Museum of African American History and Culture honors the legacy of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. through the musical tribute MLK 50, A Requiem for a King, by the Soulful Symphony Orchestra. April 6th through Sunday, April 8th, the 29th annual James A. Porter Colloquium on African American Art is at Howard University. And on April 7th, a stage presentation of the book Between the World and Me by ta Coates is at the Kennedy Center. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn, stay with us. Now, for more international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. And first, Gerald, I want to follow up our conversation last week on the alleged poisoning of a British spy. This week, it seems that the UK's case against Russia for allegedly being responsible for that poisoning is falling apart. That is for sure. I mean, first of all, there were indications in the U.S. press just a few days ago that the daughter of Skirple, the man who was the principal target, supposedly, of this nerve agent attack, it was suggested initially that she was on her deathbed, but now she's recovered. She's giving statements to the press. She is apparently being kept away from Russian consular authorities, which raises grave questions of international law. And in any case, there was a debate this Thursday in the United Nations Security Council where it was clear that the idea that there is ironclad evidence that Russia was responsible for this nerve agent attack, that the evidence simply is not there. And it's quite curious that London, which lived through the Iraq weapons of mass destruction allegation episode that led to the attack on Iraq in 2003, that London is trying to replicate that in 2018. If you look at this episode from 30,000 feet, I think you have to come to the conclusion that London is trying to make itself more valuable to the North Atlantic countries because it's going through this Brexit withdrawal from the European Union. But at the same time, it's very dangerous because Russia is not a country to be trifled with, as evidenced by its development of even newer versions of nuclear weapons, and as evidenced by the fact that just in Moscow this past week, there was a major meeting of defense ministers, including from China. So this is an escapade by London that's rapidly spinning out of control. Speaking of China being there, you have some news out of China as well as Mexico. 
Well, with regard to China, is this tariff war that's erupting between Beijing and Washington. Uh, Mr. Trump seems to feel that the United States cannot lose since China has a surplus in terms of its trade relations, he says. And therefore, the United States can only win because it will presumably be able to claw back a part of that so-called surplus. But the problem is, of course, is that this crisis with China is taking place as the United States escalates tensions in the Taiwan Strait, separating the rebel province of Taiwan from the People's Republic of China, at the same time that Russia and China are developing ever closer relations, including developing relations concerning uh, mutual production of weapons. But in the longer scope of things, I think it's fair to say that Richard Nixon's journey to Beijing some four and a half decades ago where he sought to enlist China in an anti-Soviet entente, succeeded in the short term in the sense of helping to bring down the Soviet Union. But in the long term, I think historians will see it as a disaster because the payoff to China was building up its productive capacity. And with Mr. Cutlow, Mr. Trump's leading advisor in economic affairs, already backtracking on the import of some of these tariffs, it's apparent that China is now in the passing lane, and it does not appear that that will change anytime soon. Well, this week, Trump has stepped up his rhetoric around the border and even ordering U.S. troops to the border with Mexico and raising all kinds of alarms around basically constitutional law in terms of the military operating as law enforcement here in the country. Well, absolutely it is. I mean, first of all, it's this caravan, principally of poor and working class Hondurans who are seeking to escape their country, not least because the United States has interfered in the internal affairs of Honduras, seeking to boost into office various and sundry right wingers. It's no more than racism that the United States is in such a to do about the fact that a few hundred Hondurans are approaching the Mexico-U.S. border. And Mr. Trump initially talked about sending the U.S. military to the border. Now he's talking about federalizing the National Guard and sending them to the border. Uh, This is outrageous. But you have to look at the other side of the equation, which is that what it's helping to do is build up nationalist and left-wing sentiments in Mexico. There is an election taking place there within months, and left-wing candidate Lopez Obrador is seemingly on the verge of triumphing. Not only that, but Mexico is also tightening relations with China. There are now clear and key air links between Mexico and Beijing, and this is just one aspect of a closer Mexico-China relationship which I'm sure will only blossom further if the United States makes the decision to pull out of NAFTA. And finally, this week, the passing of Winnie Mandela in South Africa. And I've read many really wonderful tributes to her online, just talking about how she has a special place for South Africans, despite how she may be depicted by corporate media, Western media. Well, Winnie Madagasela Mandela is better known to many in your audience, I assume, as the former spouse of Nelson Mandela, the first leader of Democratic South Africa in 1994. But certainly during the 27, 28 years that he was incarcerated, uh, she held high the banner of anti-apartheid. 
And certainly, uh, Comrade Winnie uh, made some mistakes in terms of the Mandela Football Club, in terms of various kinds of financial manipulations. But I think that her being regarded as the mother of the nation, which is how the headlines have read in the present South Africa in recent days, probably will be the way that most South Africans recall her. Well, we'll definitely watch out for the coming memorials and, you know, celebrations of her life. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn, and his latest book is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. And he'll be here in Washington, D.C. and in Baltimore at the end of April, right? Yes, I'll be uh, speaking at the Real News headquarters in Baltimore at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, April 18th in conversation with Paul Coates of Black Classic Press on the topic of why black lives don't matter. And then Saturday, April 21st at 3 p.m. at Sankofa Bookstore, 2714 George Avenue, across the street from Howard University, uh, basically having a book signing for four new books I've published in the last six months. Okay, great. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. This little light of mine.
going on is a crime and we should stop supporting that and stop uh, just being silent about that we have we have to speak up speak up please all of you speak up thank you thank you Boycott diverse sanctions. Boycott diverse sanctions. Boycott diverse sanctions. Boycott diverse sanctions. Yes, hello. Thanks. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kay. I'm with uh, Students for Justice in Palestine at GW. Yeah. Thank you. I uh, I just want to say I think. Uh, Right now, there's a lot of craziness, and uh, there's a lot of, you know, Russia hysteria and China hysteria and all this bull about the Russian intervention in the elections. And there are all these countries, you know, that we demonize, that, that we think are, you know, just the, the root of all evil. And if we had seen a headline the other day or, you know, yesterday uh, that Russia had shot thousands of people that were peacefully demonstrating or, you know, the Chinese were shooting thousands of peaceful demonstrators... This country would be calling for war, it would be declaring sanctions, it would be calling, you know, these people despotic uh, dictators and uh, deniers of human rights. But when Israel clearly, you know, undeniably commits these human rights violations, slaughters people, it's, you know, defended. There, are, There's always justification provided and, and whatnot. So when all these accusations of terrorism are levied against the Palestinian people... I don't even know what to say to that because if you think about what the word terrorism means is using violence to achieve a political a goal or, or means you don't have to look any farther than Israel and the United States which what country in the world you know kills thousands of people every you know few years creates an apartheid state in the West Bank denies people access to, to water food medicine there's a human rights, humanitarian crisis in Gaza right now, and that's completely uh, imposed by the Israeli regime. So when I think about terrorists, I think about Benjamin Netanyahu, I think about Donald Trump. And I, honestly, I've been amazed with the, the patience of the Palestinian people to go out and demonstrate peacefully. Having faced 70 years of colonialist white supremacist violence, I'm, I'm amazed of, of, at the will of the Palestinian people to continue to march unarmed, to continue to, you know, face guns and tanks and artillery. And I think the sooner we realize that the fight in Palestine starts right here in Washington, D.C., the sooner we'll be able to dismantle the occupation. Thank You just heard voices at the Rally for Gaza, sponsored by Code Pink, outside the White House on Monday, April 2nd, 2018. The first voice you heard was Gail Murphy of Code Pink and also Rabbi Moshe Berbeck. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word. Palestine People there have lost their land Some have lost their home 
They live in other countries Their freedom almost gone Palestine Needs her freedom Palestine Needs our love Palestine Needs her freedom Palestine If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and joining me to discuss more in depth the continuing crisis of police violence and killings here in D.C. and across the country is Sean Blackman, an organizer with the Stop Police Terror Project D.C. and co-host of the radio show By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining me today, Sean. Thanks for having me. Well, protests are continuing around the country in the aftermath of Stephen Clark being shot to death by Sacramento police. And since then, or at the same time, there's constantly more news of police shooting to death people around the country, African-Americans. So tell me about these cases and what impact they are having on the movement for black lives. Yes, well, when we look at the police murder of Stephen Clark in Sacramento, the Cynthia Clements in Illinois, even uh, just most recently, uh, the killing of Saheed Vassell in Brooklyn, New York, it's very clear that the pattern of racist police terror in this country is still very much alive, but so is resistance to it, as you have mentioned. And in terms of the impact that it's having on the movement for black lives, what I've begun to see is more of a sharpening of vision or more of a clarification of ideology, if you will, not just around incidents of racist police murder or of brutality, but of the role that the police play in a capitalist system and the reasons why they behave the way they do and how they function within black communities and other poor working and oppressed communities in this country. And uh, it's become more of a conversation about the nature of the police as an institution and uh, how that connects to sort of the broader material conditions of black folks in this country. The Terrence Sterling case, interestingly enough, actually raises something that a lot of these incidents do in terms of the complete lack of accountability that police have, not only in D.C., but in different parts of the country. And so that's why Stop Police Terror Project D.C. and other groups have been working so hard on uh, something called the NEAR Act, which stands for our Neighborhoods Engaged Achieve Results. And what that basically is designed to do is to replicate certain programs that we saw in places like Richmond, California, uh, Chicago, Baltimore, and other places where it basically gives resources to violence interrupters so that the people in the communities where the police are such a heavy presence gives them the resources uh, to basically address issues, uh, community conflict, community violence, crime uh, themselves so that they don't have to engage with the police. Uh, Because what we often see from city governments, including Washington, D.C., under Muriel Bowser, is that the response to the issues within poor and working black communities and other communities of color and oppressed communities is that they just want to send in more police. But, I mean, it's been shown time and again that not only does it not help 
they act as sort of a occupying army, if you will, within these communities. So all that really happens is that arrests skyrocket and more and more people are funneled into the mass incarceration system, but there is no considerable change to the issues at hand. So from our perspective, if we really want to see a, a positive shift, then you have to start giving resources to some of the basic necessities of life, the roots. So in terms of the jobs uh, that are available, the wages that are available at these jobs, the resources that people have, health care, education, and things like this. When we look at places like Southeast D.C. or in any poor black area anywhere in the country, they all have these sort of same similar issues, but instead of addressing that in an honest and direct and critical way, city governments basically just want to throw more police at the problem, which basically creates a situation where people's lives are criminalized, and it makes it very, very difficult to even move about the neighborhood where you live. So I think that there's a lot of things happening right now, and this is around the same time that the whole nation, the whole world is commemorating the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And I know that many times when people talk about the movement for black lives, they kind of dissociate it from the civil rights movement. But as an activist in this movement today, I mean, what do you see as the links between Dr. King's legacy and today the movement for black lives is in the historical continuum of the black liberation struggle that has been going on in this country ever since black folks were first brought to this country as slaves now speaking about martin luther king uh, specifically in the 50th years since his assassination i think it's significant on a number of levels on the one hand we know that Dr. King was assassinated uh, not because he had a dream, but because toward the end of his life, we saw uh, a radicalizing of his politics. He was vocally and explicitly anti-war. He was anti-imperialist and he was anti-capitalist. And he spoke about what he called the interrelated triple evils of racism, economic exploitation and war. Uh, Dr. King understood very clearly that all the obscene, uh, positively repugnant amounts of money that were going to kill and bomb people in Vietnam and other uh, parts of the world where the United States was engaged in these uh, conflicts. But he understood, and he called war an enemy of the poor. That was the language he used, the enemy of the poor, because he knew that all that money and resources that were going to lubricate the military-industrial complex and the war machine, that was literally food that was taken out of the mouths of poor, working, and oppressed people in this country. And if you look at the things that Dr. King was a part of and supported, when he supported the freedom economy, when he helped put together the Social and Economic Bill of Rights, Dr. King was calling for things like a universal income that not only paid a living wage, but also rose with the cost of living. So in that way, almost like a forerunner to the Pfeiffer 15 
that we see today. So King knew that whatever gains were made under the Civil Rights Movement in terms of the Voting Rights Act and all that sort of thing, and he said that all of that would come to naught, really, if we don't actually give support to all of the underdeveloped folks of this country, which, of course, includes black folks, but included other groups as well. And I think the point often gets missed that when Dr. King died, he was supporting a labor struggle. And it's something that we sort of know intellectually. We know, okay, he died during the Poor People's Campaign. But I feel like oftentimes, and certainly in the mainstream, they don't delve into what precisely that means. And they don't go into how King would spend time up in the slums of Chicago, fighting slum conditions and things like this, trying to get uh, the civil rights movement started in the North. And so these are all the sorts of things that we see still talking about today in the movement for black lives. I talked earlier about the material conditions and poor working in oppressed communities and how we see police murder playing part and parcel in that fact, because the police, they're basically used as a military solution to the social problems and the contradictions that we see in these communities because of the underdevelopment under the system of capitalism. This is what King understood. And what also should be pointed out, I think, is about how King understood the limits of his own nonviolent philosophy and how he would speak to people in communities that were uh, uh, ravaged by the different uprisings that we were seeing, the so-called race riots, uh, to use the language of that time. And he would uh, encourage them to use nonviolence, and they would say, well, what about Vietnam? And so he realized that he couldn't really trumpet nonviolence here while the United States was being supremely violent in other parts of the world. And he pointed out the hypocrisy about how the United States applauded him when he told black folks to be nonviolent against, you know, a racist sheriffs like Jim Clark or, or Bull Connor. But when he told America to do the same thing, he went from a darling of the status quo to the enemy of the state. And so this is the history that has been skewed. And so what we get today is, is sort of a de-radicalized, whitewashed, milquetoast king that is hardly even a shell of the man himself or his true politics. And that's why I think it's so important that we always hold that up, because if we don't and if we're not clear on this history, then that means that king can be used as a bludgeon against uh, radical movements today, both by liberals and reactionaries alike. I totally ran run out of time. And it looks like because of the bad weather, we're expecting that Stop the Cops rally and protest has been changed to Wednesday, April 11th at 5.30 p.m. at 3rd and M Streets in Northwest D.C. And if people want more information, they can check out your Facebook page, Stop Police Terror Project D.C., or, you know, they can check for the events there, right? Yeah, absolutely. There or Black Lives Matter DC or, you know, uh, BYP 100. Uh, right. Any of those uh, will probably see it. Right. Okay. Sean Blackman, the organizer with the Stop Police Terror Project DC. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Esther. See if y'all know this song. If y'all know it, y'all gonna sing it with me? Never would have made it Never could have made it without, without you I would have lost all But now I see how you Were there for me and now I 
that I never would have made it no But now I can see how you were And now I am stronger and I'm a wiser. I'm better, so much better when I'm the back of a holy promise. I can see that you were the one I Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. I wrote a, a letter to my toddler granddaughter recently expressing my hopes for her future in America. My hope is that she inherit a United States that wasn't so divided. We are a nation huddled masses yearning to be free, and at the same time, a nation that supports violent, racist, misogynist rhetoric actions. We are a land of the free and home of the brave, and a nation that applauds trash talk, name calling, uncivil discourse. We are a nation of diverse races, religions, and ethnic origins, seeking inclusivity in an America that rings with the harmony of liberty, and a nation that has an ugly undercurrent of anger, fear, and hate. You can say amen anytime. Amen. Was liberty and justice for all too much to hope for? It used to be that any discussion on race in America would upset sensibilities. Because we tend to believe what we believe and look for assurance, whatever we believe, whether it's wrong or right, until some event or experience shatters our belief system, no matter how long we have it. And any time anyone asks the hard questions about where we are and where we need to go and how do we get here within racial justice and race relationship and race chasm and racial profiling and American exceptionalism and privilege, it makes people uncomfortable. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's good. We must dare to open the door exposing what looks like acts like, tastes like, and feel like racist, political, social, and religious reality so that we can begin the journey from passivity to complacency to activism. Our silence does not protect us, writes Audre Lorde, and Martin Luther King put it this way, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Not talking about race just will not make it go away. Sadly, we live in a nation with proclivities that has spawned generations of oppressive policy and progressive marginalization. The hate door has been flung wide open to usher in a new era of terrorism. Terrorism is nothing new. Did you hear what I said? I said terrorism is nothing new. It's been going on since humankind put pen to paper to record the interactions between members of the human race. 
Its stench has permeated the air with its foul odor of hatred and fear. Its redolence suffocates critical thinking and sends shock waves even through the Constitution of the United States. Terrorism is nothing new. The tectonic plates of humanity shift during wars and rumors of war. Unswerving acts of violence creating various seismic disruption in our political, financial, and personal affairs. Terrorism has been going on since the snake stalked Eve in the garden and since Cain's premeditated murder of Abel. It's been going on a long time. State terrorism and revolutionary terrorism follow one another in a vicious reciprocal cycle. Terror begets terror, begets terror, begets terror. Whether that terror is in Alabama or in Algeria, whether it's in Ferguson or France, whether it is in Sacramento or Sri Lanka, hate versus hate, terror follow terror with a vicious cycle of bomb planting, specific group force creating a consistent feeling that no one is safe and nothing is safe. It casts a shadow over our daily activities where school children wonder if they're going to be next, where the children playing outside in the yard are going to be next, at a pool party with friends, am I going to be next, playing music in a parking lot, am I going to be next, in Bible study or worship, are we going to be next, walking home with Skittles and an icy, going to be next, in your car at a traffic stop, you going to be next? Or in your grandmama's backyard, are you going to be next? Nothing and no one is safe. Terrorism, by definition of many, is a systemic use of terror as a means to coerce and intimidate. It is the use of violence against civilians in pursuit of a political agenda or a goal. It is a method of creating a general climate of fear in a community or a country or on a segment of the population to achieve and to push some goal. It's not hard, my friends, to go from these basic definitions of terrorism to what is happening today. They are those who can draw a thin, bloody line from these definitions uh, to say uh, that if uh, your terror uh, tactics of hate uh, and exclusion and in violence uh, and the threat of violence, uh, it can make you a homegrown terrorist. Is it possible to say, and some may say yes it is, to draw a bloody thin line uh, to excessive force uh, as an act of terrorism? A bloody thin line to systems of disenfranchising voting Americans who are duly registered and active terrorism, manipulating laws to keep black and brown people from being able to register to vote and voting, an act of terrorism, systems of voter oppression that makes people afraid for their lives and their job just to talk about voting is an act of terrorism. Systemic policies that pull the rug, educational and financial rug, from underneath a segment of a population, is it an act of terrorism? Dr. King found the courage to become a major social justice mobilizer. 
He held no political position, no special title in Congress or government, was not appointed to anything anywhere, was not financially wealthy or privileged, but yet, 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 he brought pressure to bear to help bring about federal voting rights, civil and housing rights in a dangerous climate of violence. The Poor People's Campaign and subsequent March on Washington was a way back then Occupy Anything, whether it was Occupy Washington or Occupy uh, Nashville or Texas for economic justice and the March for Our Lives uh, that our children just led. Did you hear what I said? That our children just led. Uh, when children have to take the streets, it means the adults ain't doing their job. Today, my brothers and sisters, we must find the courage of our convictions to face racist and terrorist and violent nuances of our day and time. The courage to refuse to normalize negative entrenched practices and speak the truth in bold-faced lies. For anybody knows that even if you tell a lie often enough, it doesn't make it the truth. As Dr. King said yesterday, that is true today. We must build dikes of courage to hold back the flood of fear. Racism will end when people stop creating systems of racist tactics that create a divided class system supported by public policy and tax dollars. Tell your neighbor it's time to take a stand. It's time to take a stand against systems that promote phobia and undeniable hatred of black and brown people. Tell your neighbor it's time to take a stand to get in touch with the racism that lives in your heart. <laughs> Those assumptions that live deep down in there about other people. It's time to take a stand. Tell your neighbor and challenge yourself to fact check whether the assumptions you have about other people, races, and religions is actually true and a fact or something that is taught by culture and supported by a racist society. Tell your neighbor, it's time to take a stand. Think before you speak something derogative about somebody else. Take a stand not to tell that joke you heard or laugh at a racist joke publicly or privately or allow it to be seen in the media. Tell your neighbor, take a stand. If you see something, say something. Try it again. If you see something, say something. Don't hide the, hide the darkness of this evil, but bring it to the marvelous light. Corey Byrne saw something, so he said something. He was a 15-year-old high school freshman in a suburban high school in Houston, Texas, when he read in his textbook that Africans, his ancestors, were brought to American plantations in the 15 and 1800s, not as slaves, but as immigrant workers. He saw something and said something. He told his mother uh, she saw something, so she said something and shamed the textbook company to put slavery back into the textbook. If you see something, then you got to say something. Tell your neighbor to take a stand to visibly and vocally support uh, racist events and conversations and terror tactics. Uh, tell your neighbor take a stand. 
to create and support returning citizens programs as they return to the justice system. Tell your neighbor, take a stand. Stop saying it's okay when it's not okay. It is not okay. We cannot condone the violent ambush of police officers just like we cannot condone the senseless acts of violence against unarmed systems. Uh, take a stand. Uh, be a proactive parent, a proactive adult, a proactive individual to be a role model of what it looks like to care for your neighbor and take care of your neighbor and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, Tell your neighbor to take a stand. To refuse those who have already perished to remain a hashtag. But support those who support changes in laws or new laws to make sure that unarmed persons are murdered. You have heard the Amber Alert, have you not? This is where you say yes. You've heard about the Amber Alert, right? That came from the abduction and murder of Amber Hagerman in Arlington, Texas. You have heard of the Adam Child Protection and Safety Act? Say yes. That came from Adam Walsh's abduction and murder from a Florida mall. You remember Maddie's call? Say yes. Created by the city of Atlanta. That came from the disappearance of Maddie Moore, a 68-year-old Alzheimer victim. And it's now called the Silver Alert. Let's take a stand and move from hashtag to create the laws uh, that make sure that stuff don't happen again. We need a Tamir Rice law and a Travon Martin law and a Parkland students law to protect our students and protect our community. Let's take a stand. We have a cause to stand on. We have a permission, to, a position to stand, but we also have the word of God. Where are the people of faith out here today? Where are the people of faith out here today? We have the word of God to take a stand on. We can stand on Psalm 106.3. Come on, baby, we ready to go. Take a stand. Take a stand on Psalm 106.3. Blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. Take a stand. Stand on Micah 6 and 8. Do justly. Walk justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with God. Take a stand on Zechariah 7 and 9. This is what the Lord says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to each other. Take a stand on Deuteronomy 16 and 20. Follow justice and justice alone. Take a stand on Deuteronomy 27 and 19. Curse the man who withhold justice from the alien, the father and the widow. Take a stand on Proverbs 28 and 5. Evil men do not understand, but those who seek the Lord understand justice fully. Take a stand on Leviticus 19 and 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Take a stand on Isaiah 1 and 7. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. I said take a stand. 
the Lord loves the righteous and justice, and the earth is full of his unfailing love. And then, beloved, after you have done all, take a stand. Y'all are still sitting. I said, take a stand on the cause to eradicate racism. I said, take a stand to turn King's dream into a reality. I said, take a stand on the word of God and allow God's word to guide you. Anybody willing to take a stand? 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 Tell your neighbor on the other side, I'm willing to take a stand. Go to that neighbor on the other side, I'm willing to take a stand. Now is not the time to back away. Now is not the time to get tired. Now is not the time to go away. But now is the time to roll up our sleeves. Take a stand and end racism now in our lifetime so that our children won't have to wrestle with this issue again. Come on, y'all praise God out here. Shout for the Lord one more time. Shout for the Lord one more time. And Bishop Vashti McKenzie, speaking at the Rally to End Racism, will have the last word on today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Sean Blackman. The music we played this hour included Marvin Sapp singing at that same rally, April 4th on the National Mall, and Palestine, sung by Lucy Murphy. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam, holding on to the real legacy of the real Martin Luther King Jr., who was a dreamer but also an activist with a radical revolutionary vision that was anti-war and anti-imperialist. In these times, that vision is something we can hold on to and lift up. Thank you for tuning in. To everybody listening, keep raising your voice. Peace.